Hello and welcome to this July 2012 edition of the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is the economist Paul Ormerod. Paul studied economics at Cambridge and has had a career spanning both the academic and business worlds, including working at The Economist and as a director of the Henley Centre for Forecasting. He's currently a director of the Volterra Economic Consultancy, which he co-founded, and much in demand internationally as a speaker on a wide range of business and economic topics. Paul is the author of three previous books, The Death of Economics, Butterfly Economics, and Why Most Things Fail. Writing of the last of these in The New Statesman, Brian Appleyard described it as exhilarating, and went on, the real importance of what Ormerod is saying goes far beyond economics. You could say the same thing of his new book. When I met him recently, it was to discuss positive linking, how networks can revolutionise the world. If we want to understand how the economy works, Paul argues, we need to view it not so much as a machine, but as an organism. We have to look at its human dimension, its network effects. Instead of viewing each one of us as a rational, independent economic decision-maker, the conventional view of economics bequeathed to us by the 19th century, we need to recognise that we are all part of networks, complex webs of human relationships linking us to many others in the real world and online, and that these networks exert influences that affect our behaviour in both economic and social spheres. The book is fascinating on how networks work, the different types of networks, and the implications of all this for planning for the future. I began, though, by asking Paul about the tenacity of the conventional view of the economically rational man, the individual who assesses all his options and takes his economic decisions in splendid isolation. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a scientific theory, and like all theories, it makes simplifications, it makes uh, assumptions. Uh, and the question really is, for any scientific theory, how reasonable are those assumptions? We have to simplify to understand. Even the most complicated theory isn't anywhere near as complicated as the real world. So we make simplifications and we see how reasonable these simplifications are. Now, it contains a very important grain of truth, which is one reason why it survived, is that people react to incentives. So to give, um, I give an example in the book of the congestion charge in London when a charge was levied on cars travelling into the central zone of London and there were fewer journeys made than there were, were, were without the congestion charge so people reacted to what was a tax. Now it doesn't mean it's always completely predictable, uh, it may be quite hard to anticipate. People may react to changes in incentives in unanticipated ways but um, undoubtedly, you know, people do react. So it's partly true. It's when economists start to draw the conclusions that people act in this so-called rational way, that they either, they always, well, they make essentially for them, what is for them as individuals, the best decision. Either they make the best decision at any point in time, or they will learn to make it. Now that's not the case at all. And there's a whole discipline which I'm talking about partly in the book of so-called behavioural economics, where people, instead of assuming that people behave like this, so-called rational economic man, they actually go and see and test how people really do behave. 
And in many circumstances, although people are reacting to incentives, they're not reacting in the ways which are predicted by this standard model. So it's very pervasive. It's got a big lock on economic policy and social policy because it's partly true. And it also seems importantly to give policymakers something to do. If you say, I want to solve this problem, an economist will say, change this tax. No, change this incentive. And it seems as if you're doing something. And however complicated the actual modelling may be, it does suggest that things are ultimately susceptible to being modelled. Therefore, there's a certain degree of consolation built into it, isn't there? Sort of intellectual comfort that, that you can actually, in a mechanistic way, d- describe human behaviour. Oh, yes, I think that's very important. It's been a very uh, important driving force in policy, particularly in the last 20 or 30 years. So rather ironically or paradoxically, um, whichever, a discipline, economic theory, which, is, um, which does indeed describe in its idealised form how free markets operate, has provided the intellectual justification for massive state interventions in the economy. So there's a very uh, important policy concept, something called market failure. So in other words, economists identify imperfections in the system which prevent markets from functioning, and therefore they can tell policymakers, politicians, what they have to do to remove these obstacles, and then once you've got the idealised market working, everything will be fine. So just give an example, say from financial services, it's obviously a very important one, you may feel that um, individuals are not given enough information um, about products. I mean, as we're speaking now in uh, July 2012, there's a very live issue in Britain uh, where small businesses were sold very complicated financial instruments by banks in the boom of 2006, 2007 and uh, 8, um, which have resulted in them making huge losses and they were simply not suitable for these people. And so there was a problem with information. So there's a market failure. People don't have enough information to make the best decision. And so you then, the regulator provides it. Or you can design, think the same with the financial system, that this is a, a problem, a, a view which is now being exposed as being wrong. If you are sufficiently clever, you can design regulations to anticipate everything um, and to put it in place and people will respond in the optimal, the best way and everything will function smoothly and perfectly thanks to the system that you've designed. And the other problems with this model, I mean, I want to get onto networks, but in a, in a way it's interesting to talk about what's come before it in order to see what networks can bring to it. And the, the other problems, it seems from the book, are that it, the rational economic model presumes that people act in isolation and that they act in full possession of the facts. Yes, I think, well, not necessarily. The, the second point, that they have full possession of the facts, and that's what economists want them to have, think right. they ought to have. But the, again, I describe this in the book, uh, important developments in economics in the last 30 or 40 years, which says, well, what happens if people don't? Um, so that's more realistic, because often people don't have the full possession of facts. But the first point you mentioned, I think, is really the fatal weakness of uh, conventional economics in the 21st century. As I say, the idea that people react to changes in incentives you know, is true, so that's a partial insight. But people increasingly are not isolated individuals, and this is a the, the world has fundamentally changed. 
maybe again it's a scientific theory so we make approximations to reality which may not be completely true but if they're reasonably true it'll tell us something maybe when economic theory was first developed 120 years 130 years ago that might not have been a completely mad assumption to make but now we've got the internet so we can be connected all over the world instantaneously we can be aware of opinions and views and tastes and choices uh, made by millions of people all over the world. For the first time in human history, most of humanity, the majority of humanity now lives in cities rather than villages. And this is a tremendous shift, which has only occurred in the last few decades, a profound shift. You can see what people are doing in, there are social norms in villages, but in cities, you can't help but be exposed to an absolute myriad of alternative choices, alternative lifestyles, you're bombarded with what other people are doing and thinking. And to assume that people are acting in complete isolation of this, and they don't change their behaviour simply because other people do, um, I think is a, a fatal weakness of trying to describe what happens in um, the economy and society in the 21st century. So when we're talking about networks, we're not just talking about things like self-conscious networks, like professionals going out and swapping their business cards on a, on a Tuesday evening or Twitter or, or Facebook. We're really talking about a model for the whole of human society's interactions, aren't we? Uh, yes, I think that's important. Networks aren't just uh, social networks like Facebook. They're not just the sort of like, the professional networks you describe. Uh, they're, they're how we live our lives. Um, and we'll, we'll be involved with different networks in different aspects of our behavior. So for example, if you, oh, I mean, I'm interested in hill walking, I'm not actually a hill walking club, but many people are, um, or I've gone to hill walking websites and you find out information. Or if, if, you, if you're thinking, for example, you're thinking of a completely different point, uh, you're thinking of taking out a pension scheme. Well, there'll be a few people you may know who trust who you trust to get a, have, a, have a view on this, or you may have a favorite journalist. And so you will copy what they do. You can't possibly process all the information. So that's one group. But again, if you're thinking about um, going out for an eat which restaurant to go to, you'll take recommendations from a different group of people. So people have got complex social networks, and these are real life ones, um, as well as the internet and so forth, and they'll use different ones in different contexts. Now, given what you just said, it's a complex picture. So how do you begin to model it? How do you begin to identify the characteristics of a network? Well, I think a key thing we have to do, and unfortunately there's a very um, simple um, guide to this, uh, to look at outcomes and say, are networks effects present in determining people's behavior? In other words, rather than simply acting as isolated individuals, are people changing their behavior simply because other people do it? I mean, fashion's an obvious example, which everybody agrees on. Things are fashionable, things simply because people want it. And you see more people want it, the more likely you are to have it. You know, fashion's been with us since time immemorial. But these features are spreading more and more wide, pervading all aspects. Uh, they even, in fact, I mean, there's a more esoteric level, pervade central banks, where it became fashionable in the 1990s to believe that central banks should be so-called independent of government. And then suddenly we had the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, all people copied. So people are, are copying. So where network effects are present, well, which I mean that people are at least in this particular context, their behaviour is decided not by rational appraisal of the 
properties of the different choices and making an isolated choice, but their choices are directly affected by what other people are doing, saying, thinking. And so that's what we're looking at. Now, uh, what I describe in the book, and it would take too long to describe in words, uh, uh, in the interview, but it's all in words, it's all in English. Uh, there are no maths in the book, although it relies on some really, really rather powerful mathematics. Is what we're looking, when we're looking at unequal outcomes. So for example, on uh, Google, uh, that if you, people do a search, and the first three uh, sites that come up get 98% click-through rate. Now, they may actually be not terribly informative, but that because they're there, or when people are, say, scanning the web, and say, looking at a newspaper online or a, web, a news site, and they'll see a little box saying, stories trending now. And they may click on this, even though they have absolutely no intention of following that particular story, because it's trending, and it's trending simply because other people have clicked on it. And if you ever look at these things, it may, be, it may have intrinsic importance, let's say, if we go back, you know, if there's another sort of attack on New York by aircraft, then yes, of course people will look at it, that's got intrinsic importance. But many of these stories are wholly trivial, but lying behind them is a temporary network, the network of people who've clicked on it. Once an item gets a few clicks, it then makes many, many more. So it's this very self-reinforcing process uh, which leads, if you like, to the most popular choices being many, many times more popular uh, than least ones. So we can observe unequal outcomes if people have different preferences, but nowhere near to the same extent. And this is the characteristic, if you like, footprint of network effects, their presence in this market, in this situation, when we observe these highly unequal outcomes. Well, I thought one of the most fascinating examples you quote in the book is of an experiment in which the participants were given a choice of songs, rather like one of these online uh, music stores. And perhaps you can describe what happened, because I think it, it really exemplifies the, the, the strong polarizing effect of, of networks. Well, yes, this was an experiment done, um, it must be uh, seven years ago now, amongst, uh, it was amongst students. And so they were given a choice. It was a genre of music which was popular with students at the time. And the experiment was carried out in two, um, in two modes. So first of all, a student could go in and there were 48 songs and could listen to uh, snatches from however how many he or she wanted and then download the songs if they liked them. And they had, they had to rate the songs. And that was one. And so that, if you like, would be the conditions of rationally isolated economic person. People are acting in complete isolation listening to these songs of, rel of unknown bands, but in the genre that was popular with students. And then we get the outcome. Some, um, and by and large, the most popular two or three of a range of 48 were about three times most popular than the least popular three. The graph looks quite even. It's quite yes, a gentle. Yes, 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 yes. And so there, there's a bit of inequality, but it's not great. And then the experiment was repeated. Misha's experiment was run many times, but with one key difference. Each time when a student was going to download, he or she was given the information on a screen about how many times each song had been downloaded previously. So you know the number one choice. So two key things. So first of all, the outcome was dramatically different. This time, the most popular wasn't three times more popular than the least popular. The range wasn't three, but was 50. And importantly, the ones in these experiments which became, which became so successful, the average quality was no different 
to the average quality of the choices as a whole that the students had, rank, had ranked previously. So there was some weak evidence that songs which were rated highly in the individual experiments did slightly better, uh, but the connection was very weak and it was essentially driven by its copying phenomenon. As soon as something is downloaded, then people deduce that it must be popular if other people have chosen it, regardless of its quality. And it was an absolutely dramatic demonstration of the power of networks. And that's rather sobering, isn't it? That the inherent quality, I mean, obviously music is subjective, but you cite other examples where the inherent quality of the, the artifact of the product really doesn't seem to matter. And, and copying is a kind of pejorative term, isn't it? So it doesn't, it doesn't reflect very well on us in a sense, does it? Oh, no, on the contrary. I mean, I think, um, well, two, two points first of all. I mean, obviously a product which actually didn't function at all. You know, see so if you bought an iPhone and many people have bought the same iPhone and it just didn't work, then obviously its sales are quite soon going to go to zero. So we're talking about things which do what they say on the label. So the extent to which they do them, as long as they achieve a minimal standard, it's irrelevant. But there's a very good reason for this, that there's uh, an estimate <coughs> carried out by McKinsey's looking at how many choices of products and brands, pack sizes, all sorts of things, does the typical consumer face in New York City in a single day? How many choices are available? And the estimate is 10 billion, not 10 million, but 10 billion. And this stupendous proliferation of choice is a feature of the last two or three decades. There's always been choice, but it's suddenly gone exponential, the number of potential choices. And in an environment like this, it's absolutely impossible to process our information as an individual. So it makes sense. It's now rational to decide to copy. When people, if people have copied it, may, you, may, you may think it's got superior qualities. You may think the individuals doing the copying are better at deciding than you are. I've got superior decision rules. They know how to choose better. So it's, it's much more sensible to copy than to actually try and work out for yourself which of these 10 billion choices am I going to make? Now, we, we're talking here today because you've, you've just published a book. And in book publishing, the holy grail is word of mouth. It's that, it's that book which goes viral. And at the moment, Fifty Shades of Grey has come you know, from almost nowhere and suddenly become the best-selling paperback of all time. And publishers are desperate for that kind of success. So do you, th do you think your, your book has nuggets of wisdom for, for the author and the, uh, and the publisher about how to tap into that, that great power of the crowd and the network? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this, I mean, maybe this will be a scientific experiment which fails, but I've been trying to do this with mine. Yes, you try to, obviously, I mean, people do it intuitively. You know, you try and get people to put it on their websites, try and get people to comment about it. I mean, I mean, think about how the world's changed in this respect. Let's go back only, well, certainly 15 years, then publicity was very dependent on book reviews in newspapers. And that's how people said, went to the bookshops and said, look, here's a review, put it in your shop. And that was really the key way in which you got across. But now there's much more opportunities and much more, and this is an example of inequality that, I mean, not in, in a, obviously in a positive sense, it suddenly achieves stupendous number of sales. But the, the classic illustration of this is also from popular culture. It relates to film. There's a huge amount of work being done on films. In fact, there's a uh, film this year lost $200 million. And it seems that it's impossible to predict in advance. 
So a winning formula for a film. So you could get top stars, you could have massive advertising campaigns, you could have simultaneous release across the whole United States. And you're right, when people come out of the cinema and say, that wasn't much good, the thing will just collapse and you lose huge amounts of money. And it's impossible to predict until people have actually seen it. And this is the whole point about most of the consumption decisions we make now are about, you've got some elements of experience. You have to learn your preference. So you don't know whether you'll like the film until you've seen it. Even if it's in a type of film that you like, the film type, until you've seen it, you do not know whether you're going to like it. And you individuals have to learn their own preferences, which is a profound shift. Uh, in how the, the economy and society functions. And there is the phenomenon of, of films which get really rather bad reviews and still are commercially successful, which suggests, as you were saying before, the old, the old way of the, the critic knowing best has actually broken down, it's gone. Well, I mean, you can always, in all of these cases, whether it's films or books or whatever, you can always tell a story after the event, why this was successful, why it wasn't. In fact, uh, an example I give is a sporting one, um, is a, a soccer um, example, because my hometown is Rochdale in Lancashire, which has a, a football team in the Football League, and it's probably the least successful side to remain in the Football League. For all but eight seasons of their entire history, they've been in the lowest division, they've never won a single trophy. Ten miles away as the crow flies is Manchester United, the most successful side in British history with worldwide brand recognition. But if you go back to 1931, uh, well, first of all, the teams were found in very similar circumstances. Manchester United wasn't Manchester United. It was the works team of the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway. And in 1931, they went bankrupt and they were rescued by a consortium of local businessmen. Nobody could have predicted their subsequent stupid. Here were two teams in industrial areas, in a Manchester conurbation, with very similar playing records, one had just gone bankrupt and had to be rescued. And yet 80 years later, the one is you know, a world brand worth billions of dollars, and one still remains a local team. So in advance, predicting that would have been impossible. So far we've been talking about manifestations of popular culture, mainly. But you also apply your analysis to the financial crisis of 2008. And from what you say, in, when that came along, these sophisticated mathematical models went out of the window and an intuition and rules of thumb and a sense of sort of history came into play. Can you, can you say how well, you, think, you think, saw that happening? Yeah, I think there are two, two points. I mean, purely this shows the role of chance and contingency in history. Purely by accident, the then governor of the Federal Reserve in America was an economic historian who specialised in the Great Depression of the 1930s. He wasn't a mathematical economic modeler who believed in equilibrium theory and highfalutin mathematics. This is Ben Bernanke. Yes. And I'm not, he, he's not saying he had a perfect record. He's made mistakes. But what he did, he looked back at the 1930s and said, what did people do wrong then? Whatever we do, we won't do the same thing now. We'll do some things we don't know whether they're going to work, but we, we mustn't do what was done then. And so far, it's actually, although things are not perfect, uh, it's saved us from the catastrophes of the 1930s that people think things are bad in America now. Uh, unemployment's eight or nine percent. You know, outputs fell, it's reviving again, fell three or four percent. 
In the 1930s, output fell by nearly 30%, and one in four American men were unemployed. It was a catastrophe on a completely different scale. And by looking at economic history and really seeing, trying not, not to repeat mistakes and seeing if this works, you know, got us, you know, got us, got us going. But I think we can see the crisis exactly, unless we have understand that networks are important, we can't understand the economic crisis. And just in passing, you talk about how Japan, if you look at the, the data, when it, when it got itself into a real mess, you know, you could easily have surmised that it was going to go under, but somehow something within Japanese culture, the, the way the networks were operating, meant it just about kept its head above the water. What, so what, how do you think the networks were working there? Well, it was incredible because this is, this is not the recent financial crisis. This is going back to the boom of the late 1980s. Now, we think there's, you know, stock markets have gone down a bit here, house prices are going down. In Tokyo, house prices fell 90%. So if you had a house worth a million pounds, it was then just worth 100,000. And the stock market in Japan remains way, way below its peak level of 1989. So a huge amount of wealth in housing and shares was destroyed very rapidly. Now, you would think that that would have led to an absolutely catastrophic recession, but it didn't. The culture seemed to be one of acceptance, that one minute your house worth a million, then it's 100,000, well, life still goes on, you still go to your job, and you carry on. Now, Japan hasn't been perfect in the last 20 years, but it's not a catastrophe. You go to Japan, um, it's an affluent, prosperous, thriving society. All societies have got problems, but you wouldn't think, I mean, the way it's described here in the media, you'd think there's been a crisis in 20 years. If you go there, I mean, it's not apparent. You know, they, they've pulled through it. And that was their, their social resilience, their culture on their networks, which is very, you know, you just carry on. And that was the, the cultural norm, if you like. You actually, you know, you just got on with things, even though this absolute catastrophe had happened, rather than worrying and saying, I've lost 900,000 pounds, or I, I mustn't spend anything. And they, they, they move forward. Now, one of the most fascinating phenomena you talk about is this idea of turnover. So something can be fantastically successful at one moment, and then the next week it can be forgotten and it can be replaced. And I guess you've got a sort of rather organic evolutionary interpretation of what's going on there. So what, what, what do you think that the forces at work are? Well, I think that's right. I mean, the, the turnover happens on different timescales. So, for example, on, say, Flickr or YouTube, the most popular today is rarely, I mean, sometimes, but it's certainly rarely the most popular, even in a week's time. So there's very rapid turnover there. But at a completely different timescale, we can look at world cities and their population, you know, which is the biggest, which is second biggest, and so forth. And over time, going back, there's a remarkable book which got data on world cities going back to 4,000 years ago, and longer, 6,000 years ago. There's turnover there in city sizes, much, much more slowly than popular culture. So, for example, in, I think it was you know, in 600 BC, Babylon uh, was the world's biggest city, and it had 200,000 people. It dwarfed all others. But now it's just a bunch of ruins. Now, okay, that's over two and a half thousand years. But there's always turnover. And the reason is that people copy, but humans seem to have this very important added extra ingredient. We're not just simply copiers, but we're also innovators. That we're, either some of us or all of us to a small extent 
are willing to experiment and to choose something or to take a decision or an action or adopt a mode of behavior or a view which nobody's ever done before and people and not everybody does it but there's enough people willing to do this and of course most of these innovations most of these new choices fail they don't get traction people don't copy them people don't imitate them that was the subject of my previous book why most things fail but just very occasionally you know like posting um photographs on Flickr, somebody's photograph of their dog in a hat on a skateboard is going to be number one. There are hundreds of these posted every day and somebody's will be number one purely by, by chance. And this is this innovation, the human capacity to experiment and innovate means there are always new choices, always new competitors, each one of which in principle threatens the number one. And the probability of any one of these replacing it is very, very, very small, but there are lots and lots and lots of these innovations. So eventually, number one is replaced. So Microsoft will at some point be replaced. Google will be replaced. Facebook will be replaced. In fact, we've seen, uh, we've seen MySpace, which was the most visited website, the predecessor of Facebook, the most visited website in the world in 2007 and 2008. It still exists. It's a tiny shadow of what it was only four years ago. And what you've described sounds very much like evolutionary biology, doesn't it? This, this continual experimentation, small, almost randomised changes, most of which lead to nothing, some of which suddenly take off and lead to whole new species. Oh, yes. I think if we're, I mean, this is getting rather grandiose, but I think if we're thinking about how to motivate um, economics in the 21st century we should draw our inspiration from biology rather than as been the case for the last 100 150 years it's been formalized using the tools of 19th century physics but we should learn much more think much more about biology we are an evolutionary dynamic evolving system that's how we should be thinking about, about economy and society poses problems for policymakers, but we're actually describing how the world really is, not how they would like it to be. Now, you talked about the advantage of these small experiments, mainly copying, but sometimes experimenting, and that, that leading to success in a small number of cases. How does that square with the um, experiment you reported in which numerous strategies were applied between complete innovation and copying and the ones which proved most successful were the, the ones who did straight copying? Oh, well, I mean, copying is, um, is a dominant mode. We're saying, if, if we're saying somebody's coming along and has to make a decision about whatever it is, you know, what, 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 what iPhone to buy, you know, what, what holiday to take or whatever, or it's, it's even a government taking a decision. Copying remains the most dominant part of human behavior. And the innovation is only, it only occurs with a very small, with a small probability. So let's say, I mean, this is, I mean, this is just a, an illustration. So we, we make it 100 decisions, 99 of them will do by copying. And one, we might innovate. So copying is overwhelmingly the dominant one, but it's this 1% which makes it, which is the key to humanity, which makes it sure that the number one doesn't stay number one forever. So given a big enough sample and a long enough time scale, then what you've said would, would work, would work well, out. Indeed. I mean, indeed, you know, at some point, you know, going back, like give the example of Babylon two and a half thousand years ago. Yes, because it was big. More people wants to be there. Cities are wealthy. So more and more people moved in. 
Uh, but at some point, somebody set up a hamlet, you know, somewhere else. And maybe that, you know, became in, you know, 500 years time, the biggest one of them, one of those succeeded. Uh, so timescales may be long in popular culture, it's, it's faster. Timescales may be long, but things change. Now, human behavior is such that we are capable of producing all sorts of unintended consequences. And this, this mm. is particularly appropriate when it comes to talking about public policy. I was particularly amused by the example you quote of trying to eradicate prostitution during the, the Copenhagen Climate Change Summit. And prostitutes basically gave, gave their services free in order to, to, to remain sort of active. And another example you quote of trying to reduce smoking by increasing taxis. And the result there, in some cases, was people switched to a higher tar brand and smoked more intensely, as it were. So I suppose the, the wider question is, taking all that you've said about how networks function and their complexity, how in the public policy arena can we begin to derive some benefit for society from the intuitions in the book? Well, I think the most important thing for policymakers is to recognise that many problems of in the economy and society are fundamentally the situations are driven primarily by networks rather than incentives. So incentives have got a role to play, they're not wrong, uh, but they will only have limited success. And we can see, if we go back um, to the years after the Second World War, people are full of optimism that they had the tools to design a perfect society. And we move on, you know, nearly 70 years now, and many of those problems are still with us. Now, it's not that politicians are stupid. It's not the economists have absolutely no idea. It's just that these things are inherently very difficult to control because of this network effect that copying is difficult to anticipate. There are, all, there are often unintended consequences or somebody may innovate in an unexpected way. So it means so if we don't recognise that, that this is a fundamental driving force, then we won't get anywhere. It does mean things are more difficult to control. I think it does imply, and it does reply a big change in culture from believing that the central, the, the policymaker, the person in central government by pulling the lever, pressing a button can achieve a predictable outcome. We know by now that's not true. It does imply more willingness to accept um, failure, but it implies more experimentation, trying things, almost like, like the authorities were forced to do in the financial crisis. They had to experiment, they had to do something. They had to experiment, and it does seem to partially work. They were, they were forced, to, forced to act, forced to experiment. I think it does mean, um, if you like, more subsidiarity, more devolution of decision-making as far down as possible, because one of the key features of many of these systems is uh, there's an awful lot of what we might, what's called in the jargon, tacit knowledge. So somebody, even on a production line, knows about how it works in a way which can't be described in a manual. So we've all got that in different aspects of our lives. If, we, if, if you try and write down, say for example, what you're supposed to do in your job. Now if you wrote down an employment contract with this in, it'd be like 20,000 pages long. So we can't codify everything and there's this tacit knowledge about how things work. And much of it is very local, very specific. And the more we can tap into this, uh, the more chances we ha have of really understanding what's going on and getting policies which work uh, more successfully. So I think that's a lesson, less central planning, central bureaucracy, and more genuine devolution of powers and authority. 
Paul Ormerod. Positive Linking is out now in paperback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber Podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber Podcast in the search box, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.